I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. And we're going to be studying this morning verses 44 through 49. Verse 44 through 49. This is, of course, the, the death of our Lord. Let's begin reading in verse 39. This is God's word. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, I thank you that you speak uh, your word through the preaching of the word. And so, Lord, give us today ears to hear. Uh, Father, what a privilege that you, the living God, should deign to speak to us. Uh, Father, what a, what a crime if we should deaden our hearts, stiffen our necks, close our ears, and be condemned. And so, Father, I pray that we would, we would hear and love Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. As you know, Joanne and I had the opportunity to take a a sabbatical. We spent a good bit of time in uh, England and um, managed to to go to uh, Amsterdam just for a quick weekend. In Europe, you can do those sorts of things, jump around. Um, Ryanair is a wonderful thing, and we need one here in America, Uh, but... Uh, we were also able to go to France, and one of the things we, we learned in uh, just doing a bit of traveling is that the benefit of tour guides. Uh, you can sort of wander around and see things, but you have no idea what you're looking at. We, uh, we, uh, for instance, we were in Paris for just uh, a day, a little over a day, and we took a, got a hop-on, hop-off bus, nice way to get around the city, and we would look at a monument, and we'd go, wow, that's really beautiful, I wonder what that's about. And then we'd see a building, well, that clearly has some significance, we have no idea uh, what that might mean. We didn't have a tour guide. Well, when we went to Normandy, we had a tour guide. We joined a small group and uh, spent six hours 
um, who took us to all the important places and explained what they meant. So we went to Point de Hoc, and we could see there the cliffs that the rangers uh, had to scale on that morning of June 6, uh, 1944. Uh, he explained, we, we saw where the bunkers, we could go down in there. We could walk down in the, into the craters where the bombs had landed. Uh, we could see um, when we went to Omaha Beach, he showed us exactly uh, where the landings were and, and all the things that had happened, all the things that went wrong. It was, uh, the tour guide was essential to really understanding. We would have missed so much if we had just gone by ourselves. And so he explained um, not only what happened, but why it mattered. And then the tour ended at the American Cemetery, where 9,387 American soldiers are laid to rest beneath white crosses row upon row upon row, looking over the ocean at the end of Omaha Beach. And so after seeing how the invasion unfolded at the cemetery, you see what it cost. It's a very sobering uh, experience. So many men who gave their life, and this is just a fraction of those who actually died uh, in the battle to free Europe from the clutches of Hitler's Third Reich. This morning I would say to you, you I'm sure that uh, most of you, if not all of you, have been to the cross before, but I, I wonder if, if you've taken the tour. Uh, because I think many people uh, know about the cross, they know things about the cross, but, but the reality of what's happened hasn't really penetrated. Uh, and, and why this really matters and what impact it ought to make and what it, what it really costs. I, this morning, Luke is, in a sense, our tour guide. He's going to lead us on a tour of the cross narrated by the Holy Spirit. And he's going to point out not just what happened, but why it happened and what it costs and what the, what the significance of it is. Uh, because as, as we go on this tour of Golgotha, we need to understand that we're coming to the most significant event in human history. This is the summit of redemptive history. All the streams of Old Testament history and prophecy, they all flow to this, and all the rivers of New Testament reality, all the grace and mercy and all the promises of a new heaven and a new earth, everything flows from Golgotha. This is the event to which all of Scripture has been pointing this is the event from which all of redemptive history now is going to continue uh, as God will finally, will, will gather his elect and then finally bring in a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus Christ is even now preparing. This is where it all happens as God redeems a ruined race, a lost world by the atoning sacrifice of his own son. J.C. Ryle, 19th century uh, pastor in Liverpool, England, said that these words ought to be printed in gold letters. Now, we know all of God's word is God's word, but it's all been pointing to this. And this is the fountainhead out of which Christians are supposed to live our life. I just keep thinking of Paul uh, saying, that the life that I live, I live by faith, conviction, assurance that Jesus Christ loves me and he gave himself for me. That's his conviction. Where did he get that? He got that right here at the cross. All the love and mercy and cleansing and acceptance and pardon and glory that your heart could ever imagine and, and ever dare dream, uh, it's all, it all is found here. But you have to see what happened and, and why it matters and what it costs. 
Um, my outline, outline this morning as we, as we take this tour of Luke, it's, it's just four R's, hopefully to help you remember. We're going to see the rejection and the rendering, and then we're going to see the result and the response. So the rejection, the rendering, the result, and the response. And as we go through this this morning, please don't, um, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you as, as you take this tour. Take it in. Luke wants us uh, to see Jesus Christ crucified on a cross, the sinless Son of God. And he's crucified there, as we've seen, between two thieves. And one of them is railing at him. If you're the Christ, save yourself. The devil is there at the cross. The devil is engaged. Remember when Jesus, we'll, we'll hit this a bit tonight, but it's, it's, um, it's just so amazing. When, when Jesus begins his ministry, he's in the wilderness, and, and the devil comes and says, if you are the Son of God. And now at the end of his earthly ministry, the devil comes again, and through the lips of the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers, if you are the Christ, save yourself. Don't go ahead with this purpose of God. But Jesus Christ will not save himself, and he's there, and, and Luke tells us the sky suddenly, it goes dark. Darkness is over the whole land, verse 44, while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour, of course, is noon. So from noon to three, when the sun should be at its zenith, and, and in that part of the world, uh, every day nearly the sun is, is reaching its zenith, in, this, in the sense you see it all the time. There's a great deal of sunlight in, in Israel. And, uh, and, and so every day, the, the, the heat of the sun is, is, is prevalent. It's there. It's known. The light is blinding, except today. And, and the light doesn't go out sort of um, partially, gradually, momentarily. We just had a, a, an eclipse recently. And if you were paying attention, you noticed it, it got darker. If you were someplace where the eclipse was, was total, you would have noticed a gradual, gradual lessening of the light, and then till it was nearly dark, and then it started to light up again. And, and uh, there have been uh, scholars who, who say that's what happened here. Well, that couldn't possibly be what happened here. Uh, first of all, eclipses don't last three hours. Uh, secondly, we know that an eclipse cannot happen while there's a full moon because the moon isn't in the right position, and Passover always happens on a full moon. Simply not possible that this, would be, that this is an eclipse. And Luke tells us what it is, the sun's light failed. Now, how exactly that happened, that's known only to God, but the fact that it did happen is, is clearly evident. Luke has, as he, as he tells Theophilus in the beginning of his book, I've carefully researched these things, uh, Theophilus, so that you might have certainty of the things that you've been taught. Luke has interviewed people who were there. The other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, uh, both uh, tell us the exact same thing happened. Roman historians uh, recorded that it happened. And so it, it took place. But what's the meaning of it? And everyone would have been asking that question. These are people who live by horoscopes. Many of them. The, Rome, the Gentiles, at least. Not the Jews, but the Gentiles. But everyone understands that heavenly signs are messages. And you need to interpret them. What does this mean? Well, the Jews would, uh, who had knew their scriptures would know exactly what it means. It means that this is judgment. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, what was the ninth plague? 
The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. So thick a man could not see for three days, darkness. Well, now for three hours, we have exactly the same thing. As God pronounces judgments, the prophets had talked about this. They'd, they had said something like this was going to happen in the day of the Lord, the day when God comes to judge sin. Amos 8 verse 9, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's exactly what's happening. You see, darkness is God turning away his face. God is light. And when God turns his face away, then there's darkness. And this is what is happening to Jesus. Jesus is suffering the outer darkness, the reality of hell itself. He's being punished for sin. The Father is turning his face away so that even Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus now on the cross is entering into the deepest moments of suffering. And the light of the sun fails. It's interesting, when people suffer great tragedies, one of the common struggles that they have is, how, how, how is it that the world just kind of keeps on going? When you've suddenly lost a loved one, and the next morning the sun just comes up like, like it's just another normal day and people go about their business and like it's another normal day and, and everything inside you is screaming, it's not a normal day. Your, your life maybe has, has ended in, in some way. Your world's been exploded. It, it, it can't be a normal day. But, but the truth is, you see, all of our tragedies are a normal day in a fallen world. They're awful and in fact, the fact that the sun keeps on shining is God's grace to a broken, fallen world. But on this day, you see, this is not a normal day. This is literally judgment day. This is the day of the Lord. This is God intentionally, specifically, purposefully engaging sin and punishing sin in the body of his son. Theologians call this truth about the cross. They say that what Jesus, what's going on here is a penal substitutionary atonement. Big words, but, but penal substitutionary atonement. It's, it's what's taking place. Penal means that Jesus is not dying simply as a victim of uh, Roman and Jewish cruelty. Jesus is not dying simply as an expression of God's love, as is so commonly taught uh, in the church today. Jesus is uh, undergoing a judicial sentence. This is an execution at the hand of the divine judge. This is a just, divinely administered penalty for sin. That's what the darkness is telling us. That's what, that's what God wants us to see, to be convinced of. He's, he's bearing the penalty of sin. And it's our sin. It's substitutionary. Jesus is substituting in our place. That's the universal truth of Scripture, and any doctrine of the cross that doesn't address that, you see, doesn't understand the cross. If you, just, if you say that this is just God um, saying, this is how much I love you, look at my son dying, well, it's, it's, 
Why is he dying? How does that express the love of God unless Jesus is accomplishing something? And the truth is that he's, a, he's paying for our sin. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. To many people that seems barbaric that, that, that the father would crucify his son to pay for sin. It's not barbaric. It's not barbaric. It's the truth about divine justice. It's the truth about the holiness of God. It's, it's the truth about the cross. And you see, it's, it's truth that in, in, a, in a profound way frees us because we, we have a problem as people and our problem is we have a conscience that tells us we've sinned. Everyone does. And, and because we do sin, our conscience speaks to us and most people, you see, try to respond to that by trying to make amends in some way. If they've done something, particularly something that really wounds their conscience, if it's a little sin like they told a, they told a lie or they stole a little something, you know, people can pretty easily just ignore that, but, but almost, right, everyone is going to do something or some things that, that actually end up bothering them. And then what? Well, most people get busy trying to, you know, fix it somehow, be a better person, make promises never to do it again, work a little harder, maybe take a class or some, get some therapy. Uh, maybe do some good things, uh, give a generous gift. A lot of people go to church for this reason. In their mind, it sort of balances out the scales. But you see, the cross forces us to face the fact that you can't fix sin. It's not fixable. fixable. It's, it's, it's like if you murder someone. And no matter how badly you feel, no matter what promises you make about what you're going to do in the future, the fact is you killed someone, you murdered someone with your own hands, and, and they're dead, and there's nothing that you can do to change that fact. It's not fixable. In fact, think of how incredibly offensive it would be for you to act as though it were. So you kill a man and, and you feel sick about it. You, you don't know what happened to you. It's just a moment of anger and rage, uh, maybe uh, road rage, whatever, and, and, but it's done. And you go to the wife and you say, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I could do to make this up to you? How about if I mow the lawn for a year? Here's $10,000. Would that, would that do it? Does that strike you as somewhat mildly offensive? Of course it is. Well, then think of people going to God, the holy God, and saying, I know I've, I've trashed your law, I've blasphemed your name, I've reviled your character, I've rebelled against you in every way. How about if I just go to church? Would that do it? Try to be a better person. Would that take care of it? Should not God be offended? It's not fixable. 
When you break the law of God, it's broken. You cannot undo it. You can't fix it. God has demanded perfect obedience because he is worthy of perfect obedience. And so there's no, there's, no, there's no fix for it. The soul that sins shall die. There's only judgment for sin. Every sin, every time, no exceptions, ever. See, if one single sin is not met with divine wrath and judgment, then God ceases to be just, and the devil was right when he said, you shall not surely die. So that's the problem we face. You can't fix your sin. It will be and it must be met with wrath and death. The only question that remains is by whom? And there are only two possible answers to that question. Either it will be met in the death, the atoning death of Christ on the cross, or it will be met with the just death of you, body and soul, forever in hell. And there are no other options. That's it. And it all hinges on whether or not you're going to confess your sin and bow the knee and flee to Christ or you're going to hold on to your pride and try to do something to make it right before God. See, the miracle, the miracle of the darkness tells us it's God's message saying that he is dealing with sin. This is judgment day for sin. This is what sin deserves, and God is dealing with it. The miracle, the next miracle, the miracle of the curtain tells us that the, the uh, death of Jesus Christ has accomplished the redemption. So we read the curtain of the temple was torn in two, the rendering, the rending of the, of the temple curtain. Now, again, you have to know a little bit about just Jewish history. You've got to know your Bible, maybe, in some sense. Uh, but what, is, what was the most devastating effect in your mind? What, what was the most devastating effect of Adam and Eve's fall into sin? Was it the thorns and thistles? So that life is hard and work is frustrating? Was it the pain of childbearing? Was it the fact that death entered the world in sickness and disease? Now, none of those things. The devastating result of the fall is that Adam and Eve were placed outside of the Garden of Eden. They're placed outside of the presence of God. They lost communion. They lost fellowship. God walked with them day by day. We're, we, we don't even know what that means. We're just used to living, you see, in this world and, and seeing through a glass darkly. They didn't see through a glass darkly. They, they walked and talked with God. He was life. And, and when they sinned, that's what they lost. And so God put them outside of the Garden of Eden and he put two angels with flaming swords so that if anyone would try to get back into the presence of God, they'd have to get through the angels and, and there's no way. Your sin has separated you from God. And the curtain in the temple, you see, was, was, was there to manifest that truth. It, the temple was, in a sense, a, a, a sign, a symbol. It was, it was the Garden of Eden recaptured in a building where you have the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself dwells. There's Eden right on the other side of the curtain, and nobody gets to go in except the high priest once 
a year on the Day of Atonement, and only if he's carrying blood that he spills, the blood of a sacrificed lamb, and he spills that on the altar for the sins of the people, and then he goes back out and the curtain closes. You see, the, 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 the sacrifice of animals um, was God's sign that sin has to be dealt with, but it never actually dealt with the sin. Every, every time the high priest went in, he had to come back out. But now suddenly, as Jesus Christ is dying on the cross, the, the curtain is ripped in two. Suddenly, the angels are taken away from the, the gates of Eden. And the door swings open. That, that's what it means. And this curtain is not just a little veil, a curtain that you maybe hang uh, at home up by your windows. This is uh, probably at least an inch thick, 30 feet high, 30 feet wide at least. And it's ripped, the Bible tells us, from the top to the bottom. This is not the work of some, someone who got in there and kind of worked his way up and managed to hack away. And This is God taking that temple veil and ripping it from the top to bottom. Think of the horror of the priests who are in the temple at that moment. It's a holy day. They're, they're making preparations for, for sacrifices. And, and suddenly, what, what no human eye should be allowed to see is just split open. And there's the ark. The holy place, the mercy seat. What does this mean? Well, for one thing, it means that the whole Old Testament ceremonial system is done. Riken says this is the obvious and dramatic end of the whole Old Testament system of sacrifice. No more lambs need to be slain for Passover. No more goats need to be offered on the Day of Atonement. No more blood needs to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The Son of God has given himself to be the final sacrifice for sin. See, this is, this is God saying the way is, has been opened. Eden, in that sense, has been opened. When we, when we read at the beginning of the service, grace to you and peace. Well, how, how does that happen? How do you and how do, how, do I, how, do, how do we get grace and peace from God our Father? The temple's been ripped open. The writer to Hebrews just celebrates this, that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sin has been dealt with. And because the sin has actually been dealt with, we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The way has been opened. And so you see, just as we need to think clearly and soberly about our sin, we need to think clearly and soberly about what Jesus Christ accomplished. Yes, your sin has defiled you. You have rebelled against God. And the sentence of judgment and wrath hang over you justly unless you come to Jesus Christ. And if you come to Jesus Christ and are united to Jesus Christ with a living faith, then the tearing of the testimony is God's, the tearing of the temple curtain is God's testimony to you. The way is open. And you don't have to hesitate to go in. In fact, you are, you, the scriptures plead with you. Go in. Find a throne of grace and mercy for your time of need. The curtain, friends, has been torn and it was never repaired. Not in the, not in the temple of heaven. The way has been thrown open and sinners are welcome now to come 
where they were never allowed to go before into the very presence of God. Because the debt's been paid. It's been paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Piper says the blood of Christ so completely covers our sin and removes our guilt that the conscience can finally be at peace. Not because we're sinless, not because the conscience doesn't sometime accuse us, but because when it does, we by faith speak to it and say, I know I have sinned, it grieves me, I hate my sin, but I have a Savior. Jesus Christ who shed his priceless blood for me to bear my sin and cover my transgressions. Therefore, be silent, O conscience. Be at peace in Jesus. We get to speak that truth to ourselves because the temple curtain was torn in two. What's the result, thirdly? Well, the result is that death is defeated. Jesus, verse 46, in a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, what's unique about that? The centurion saw something unique about it. He was standing there at the foot of the cross, and, and he'd never seen this before. He'd seen many men die. He's a hardened, crusty Roman soldier. He hasn't sort of been appointed to this posh position. He's come up through the ranks. He's been in battle. He's seen men die, including on the cross. And, and what happens on the cross uh, is that as men uh, are hung there, they're, they're not able to, they die from suffocation. Because, because they're hanging there and the weight is on their arms. And so every time they, they need to take a breath, they have to push themselves up with their legs that are nailed to the cross so that they can get the ability to just expand their lungs. And what happens is that over the over hours, you see, constantly, every breath you take, you, you, you get tired and, and you simply can't lift yourself up again for that last breath and you literally suffocate. And if you're not far enough along, that's why they come and break the legs. So, so now you cannot lift yourself at all and you die of suffocation. Centurion has seen it who knows how many times. That's not how Jesus dies. Jesus does not succumb to death. Uh, we're told that in a loud voice, he cried out. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having cried out with a loud voice, he, he, he takes his last breath. The centurion has never seen anything like this in, in his life. His life did not ebb away. It was, it was given away. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't succumb to it. You see, Jesus doesn't die here in despair. I've heard that said. I think it's absolutely not true. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. When Jesus says it is finished, he is surveying the work of his hands, his new creation, and it is very good. And now he lays down his work. It is finished, and he takes up his seventh day Sabbath rest. You see, having ripped the sting out of death by fulfilling the law, he makes death his servant. He still dies very really and truly. His soul is separated from his body. His body will go to a tomb. He is fully dead, but his soul, he yields to God. Father, he says. See, isn't that beautiful? It was my God, my God. And now, once again, God has, that, re that relationship has been restored. And Jesus says, my Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He made death his servant. 
Death is bid to come and take him home. And friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ, the same is true for you. You don't need to be afraid to die. It's Christ's servant, and and Christ knows the numbers of, of your days. And at some point, Jesus is going to say to death, his servant, I want you to go and bring so-and-so home. It's time for them to come home. And it might be through a disease. It might be through an accident. It might just be through old age. We don't know the way, but, but we know that death has been conquered, and, and it's now the servant of Jesus Christ. So we don't need to live with fear. That's, the, that's what Christ accomplished. He, he has destroyed the power of death. That's what happened on the cross. And, and his death in his very quick, soon, three-day resurrection is going to be the final proof of that. Well, how do we respond to this as we wrap up? Because it's intriguing that Luke no, uh, mentions three responses. If you have your Bible open, three responses. Notice verse 48. We'll take them in reverse. Well, let's just take verse 48. When all the, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Um, one of the things that struck me in England was just seeing these various places where there were uh, executions, either by burning at the stake or hanging or whatever it might be. And, and it would be a spectacle. People would gather. Crowds would gather to watch this happen. It was, it was a, some sort of entertainment, a blood sport, the, the, the Colosseums were built with the same thing in mind, and people would flock to see animals put to death, and then, and then slaves or criminals put to death, and then finally the gladiators would fight to, to death. It, it, was a, it was something to go and watch and maybe be moved in some way. And so the crowds came, thinking they were going to see a spectacle, to be entertained, something to talk about over dinner that night, but we're told they went home beating their breasts. This had, been, this had been awful. This had been deeply troubling. Something, something tremendous and mysterious and terrible had happened that day, and they, they didn't know what it was. And so they go home beating their breast, not saved. They saw it. They were there. But they didn't get it. And so the vast majority of them never Never, as far as we know, we're, we're just not saved. There was a veil over their eyes. It's possible that you can know all about the truth of the, of the cross, and, and yet you see it, and you know it had some significance to it, and, and yet you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not saved. You might be moved in some way with pity for Christ, whatever it might be, but, but, you, but you don't really see what it's about. It's possible to respond with unbelief. It's possible to respond, as we see in verse 49, where the acquaintances of Jesus and the women from Galilee who'd followed him, they were there watching all of this happen. And and Luke is telling us that so that we know this really happened. There's vastly too many witnesses to say this is just a story. But here are all these people who love Jesus, and and they watch him die, and they go home also, not unsaved, but not getting it. It... They don't understand what has happened. They won't get it until the resurrection. And even them, some of them, like Thomas, will say, I'm not believing until I see. And maybe that's you this morning. You're, you believe, but, but, but the truth of it hasn't really sunk home. So, so that you, while you say you believe in, in the love of God for you, you don't act like a loved person 
You're small and selfish and worldly and, and, um, and you're not thankful and grateful. There's, there's not welling up out of you kindness and mercy and, and grace. And of course, that's true of all of us, different ways. But, but do, you, do you just watch and, and yet not really, not really understand, experientially know? Because you see, there, there's, it's possible to see and, and get it and experience the glory of it. And that's, the, that's the, maybe the least likely person the thief on the cross saw. And the, and the other guy that saw is, is the centurion at the very end. Because the centurion, we're told in verse 47, saw what had taken place praised God. Nobody's praising God in this story. It's the only one we hear about who's praising God. And a centurion, a wicked Gentile, you see, Riken says this is the first man who walked through the torn curtain. This is the first man who, who gets it. In, in another gospel, this man, here he says this man was truly innocent. In another, it says, he, this was the son of God. This man sees and believes. And somehow by the work of the Holy Spirit, he's been able to realize that that this even includes him. This hard, wicked, pagan Gentile. The question is, how will you respond? How will I respond? The Spirit has given us the tour. If you're here this morning and you are not a converted person, I would just ask, what more can he say than to you he has said? What more could God say to show you the truth about your sin and what your sin will will receive, either in your body or the body of Jesus Christ? But if if you're thinking that somehow there's an escape clause for you, that if you you try your best, do your best, just be a good person, uh, that, that it'll be okay with you, you're simply deceiving yourself. And God so loved the world that he's willing to speak the hard truth to you that your sin will be judged, friend. No matter how many days you spend in a church building, your sin will be judged either in you or in Christ. And the only way that it'll be not you is when you come to this Jesus in repentance and faith. God has opened a way but it's for sinners. You see, the, the guys that get it at the cross are people who understand who they are. The Gentile man, he knows what he is, and yet there's something about this Jesus that moves him. The, the criminal on the cross knows fully what he is and why he's dying, and yet he's able to believe in Jesus. It, it, if you're not willing to confess and face your sin, it, that is the great veil that'll be in front of your eyes, and you simply will not see Christ. And so I plead with you, open your eyes to the truth, and and confess your sin and turn to Christ. And, and then for those who are converted but troubled, we, de- we just need to come to this cross. Maybe we have a sensitive conscience and our sin hounds us. And maybe there's things in our past that hound us. I was just thinking this week, have you, have you ever uh, done something wrong and you got, you got away with it and you felt awful about it? Maybe you stole something that didn't belong to you. Maybe you told a terrible lie and it had devastating consequences for someone and, um, or, or some sexual sin in your past and you didn't get caught. But you know you did it and you know it was wrong and you can't shake the guilt and, and the fear and, and something inside of you is, 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 is saying that, that sin needs to be acknowledged. It, it, it ought to be made right and, and, and penalized. 
The sense of getting away with it is, is troubling your conscience. Well, you see, the cross tells you that you've not gotten away with anything. Every sin that you've ever committed was placed on Christ and was punished there. You don't have any secret sins at Calvary. It's all known. And every single sin received the full just penalty that it deserved there. And full restitution was made for each and every crime. And so that means, sinner, that you're, you're free. You don't have to try to make up for it. You don't have to try to pretend that it didn't happen. You don't, you don't have to uh, do anything other than believe and receive the grace and love of Jesus Christ for you. And what you'll find is the freedom then of being honest. That you are a person who needs Jesus. And that, that really is the bottom line. But you're a person who somehow by the mercy and the grace of God has been given to Christ. God so loved you that he gave his only son to you. And you've come to believe in him so that you will not perish, but you have everlasting life. Jesus Christ dealt with our sin. And through his death, we have Nothing but mercy and grace. Let me close with a quote from Calvin. He says, Our only safe haven is in the mercy of God manifest in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As we are all in the sight of God lost sinners, we hold that Christ is our only righteousness, since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions, by his blood washed away our stains, by his cross borne our curse, and by his death made satisfaction for us. In him we are reconciled to God the Father through no merit of our own and by no value of works, but solely by gratuitous mercy. If you believe that, then stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for Jesus who died there. I thank you for an open tomb that proves his victory. I thank you for the gospel that we could hear today where you invite us to come with all of our sin and see the cross. And you promise us here, love and mercy will flow to us as we come in faith. Oh, Father, I pray that your word this morning would, would transform us and give us deep faith and love for Christ. Oh, God, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the victory we have in him. Thank you for the full and free forgiveness. Thank you for the open curtain. Thank you for the invitation that goes today to all the world to come and be saved. We pray that, Lord, you would grant that many, many would hear and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.